I know that when you think about Christmas and Advent and Christmas sermons, Psalm 2 is a passage that immediately pops to your mind. This is a messianic psalm. I think the first that we've dealt with in this series. And it is quite intriguing, quite fearful when you read the words in it. But I do believe that this psalm is all about pointing us to the Son of God, to Jesus, to His Messiah. And I hope that we see that as we walk through it this morning. The same Messiah that is spoken of in Isaiah chapter 7, where hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet said that the Lord Himself will give you a sign A sign of His love, a sign of His power, a sign of His authority in the earth. That sign would be that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And that is what this season is about. I've said many times, I think there's there's a place in the church for those who have the freedom in their hearts they feel to celebrate Christmas and all the cultural things that happen, and those who don't, who choose in their freedom to not celebrate Christmas in that way. And there is plenty of room for those who believe Jesus was born at this time of year and those who think it was another time of year. But I do believe that it is appropriate for us to celebrate a time of Advent. That word Advent means the arrival coming into place. It points us to Jesus when God became a man, when He sent His Son to be among us. People today want to say that every religion on earth is essentially the same. And I say to you all the time, it is not. Christian religion is unlike any other religion. It teaches that God took on humanity to come and suffer and experience what we do and ultimately to suffer the weight of sin in our place and even death, which is the wage of sin, what sin earns us. He suffered those things. God took on flesh to do that for us. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what we celebrate as a church at Advent. And what I want to do this morning is is kind of try to show how Psalm 2 is this summary, this picture of the world that God stepped into. The world that He sent His Son into. Because we have such a picture at Christmas of the serenity, the peace of a manger and the birth of Christ and angels singing. And, and, and indeed, for the shepherds in the field that were in darkness and all of a sudden the glory of the Lord was around them and the good news that on this day in the city of David has been born to you a Savior, for them it was glorious and there was peace surrounding the people, the birth of Jesus. But the world that Jesus stepped into was not peaceful. And it did not welcome Him. 
And that is what Psalm 2 is prophesying and telling us will be true of the Messiah that God sends. There's three kind of elements, I believe, to Advent. There's the darkness of the world, there's the light of God and His Son, and then there's the hope that we receive from Advent. And I want us to look at all three of those elements this morning when we think about the arrival of Jesus. And I want us to see how they are revealed to us in Psalm chapter 2. So if you are a note taker and you picked up one of the worship guides inside and the preaching guide, if you want to do the fill in the blank, if that helps you to follow along, let's start thinking about that element of darkness. The world opposes God and His rule. The world, the kingdom of men, it is opposed to God and it is opposed to the rule of God. And that is what Psalm 2 starts off with. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What the psalmist is saying is that the nations are in turmoil. There is chaos among all the kings and all the rulers of the earth, but here is something they agree with. They do not want to submit to God. They don't want to submit to His rule. They think about God and they think about His commands. They say, let's come together and let's do something so we can be rid of these cords, these chains. God wants to enslave us to His rule and His commands. Let's let's be rid of that. Let's be rid of Him. That is the mindset of the kingdoms of the world. It is the mindsets, the mindset of the collective king, kingdom of men. But if we are very honest with ourselves, it is the very heart of our nature. Our nature, our natural man, we do not want to submit to God. We don't want to submit to His rule. And at the heart of it all, in your notes, at the heart of this opposition is really this one thing. It is a battle for lordship. It is a battle for lordship. The reason that we oppose the rule of God is because at our core, we desire to be our own God. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be the one that makes the call and the decisions Even sometimes when we get to a place where we have some amount of faith and we are thinking about God and religion, even then, men find a way to try and shape and mold God into the image they want Him to have. Where He creates the rules that they want to follow. Because at our core... Our nature struggles with the idea of lordship. It has been that way from Genesis chapter 3. It has been that way from the beginning when God created us. And when the enemy of God who had already rebelled against Him came to our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, and said, 
Did God really give you these rules? And he twisted what God had said. But then in that conversation, he said to them, God is lying to you. God is telling you that there is life in His command, but there isn't. Where there is true life is is if you step outside of His command and become your own God. Eat of this tree that He has told you to not eat of and you will have the knowledge of God. You can be your own God. And Adam and Eve said yes to that. And from that moment, all of humanity has struggled has wrestled in their hearts, in their body of flesh, with a desire to be their own Lord. Even in the church, you go to James chapter 4, when you get there, James is writing to the church and, and there's conflict in the church, the church of God, there's conflict among them. And James speaks to them and he says, why is it that there is all of this quarreling and fighting among you? And then he gives them the answer. And he says, isn't it because within you there is a war happening? Your passions, your worldly desires are at war within you. And you you have all these things you want and you can't get them. Or you think to get them you need to step over the person next to you. So there's all this quarreling and all of this fighting because you're all trying to be your own gods. You're all trying to accomplish these things in your power. Even in the church, we wrestle with this natural flesh, this desire to rule ourselves. That's why Jesus told His disciples, even in their salvation, your spirit will be willing, but your flesh will often be weak. And part of the flesh, part of the wrestling that you and I experience at times, is we want to be our own God. It rears its head. You may notice it, or you may not, but it rears its head when our desires and the desires of God collide. Even in John chapter 3, one of the most famous passages that, uh, that it, there is in all of the Bible, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But right after that, in verse 19, John continues, the light has come into the world, talking about Jesus, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest His own works be exposed. Even as God is sending His Son into the world because He loved the world to save it, even then, the light of the world that comes into this darkness is hated by the world. Because they want to do their own things and they don't want to come into the light and be told what they are doing is evil. It's the world we live in. The greatest evil that you can do today in the eyes of the world is to say that there are certain things that are evil. To call what the world says is good, bad. That is the great sin of the world. 
So if this is true of all people, and this is true even in the church that we wrestle with this, then certainly when it comes to the nations, the rulers of men, it will be true of them. They rage and they fight. Why? Why are there wars? Why are there, why is there division? It is because people want power. They want control. They want to rule. The nations rage because of that. That's the answer to the question. It is why the people's plot. And I'm spending time on this because I want you to know that is the darkness that Jesus stepped into. It was not a welcoming world. And it has not been a welcoming world since His advent. But, nevertheless, God, knowing all of those things, still chose to shine His light into the darkness. He still chose to show His love to this world. He knew this world rejected Him. He knew this world would reject His Son. But He still sent His Son. He still sent the light into the darkness. In your notes, that second element of Advent, the light, God has purposed to exalt His Son as Lord of all. God has purposed to exalt His Son as Lord of all. If you want to write above Son, you can write King. God has purposed to exalt His King as Lord of all. Back in Psalm chapter 2, verse 4 and 6. So you have the nations raging and the rulers coming together and saying, let's get rid of God's rule. Let's cast away His cords from us. And this may be the toughest part of the whole psalm. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. We can't build our theology about how God sees the world from just these three passages, these three verses, because the Bible clearly tells us God loves His enemies. He blesses both the righteous and the unrighteous. But here we do see a part of God's character. The idea that the world can cast away God and His rule is laughable to God. And if you really think about what we've learned, even in Colossians, that it is through His Son that God created all things. And through His Son, God holds all things together even right now. Do you, you understand that to cast away the rule of God is death. God is giving life to this world and its people even right now. To rid ourselves of God's rule is to condemn ourselves to death. It's laughable. And God sees it that way. And then God strikes terror into the kingdoms of the world. And how does He strike terror? He says to them this, I am going to set My King on My holy hill. The world knows. The kingdom of men know in their heart 
They cannot cast away God. And He is going to set His King over all the earth. And that is what He was doing in the Advent. He sent Christ into the world to save us. But make no mistake about it, He sent Christ into the world because Christ is going to rule. Christ will be the King of all. He is the King of all now. But there is going to be a day where Christ returns and He assumes His position of authority. And He reigns forever. And in the Advent, that is what they were looking forward to. The coming of the King. And they didn't, they didn't understand that in His initial Advent that He was not yet setting up His rule on the earth. That is why some of even the disciples struggled with the ministry of Jesus. Because they assumed that when the Messiah came, there would be immediate freedom for the people of God. What they didn't know was that Christ came to die for sins, to return to His Father, and that one day He would return again. And so we stand in that same place, not waiting on the initial arrival of the Messiah, but waiting on His final and glorious return. And this is our good news in your notes. Jesus gives life. Jesus gives life. John 10.10 Jesus says that enemy, the one, the serpent from the garden, he, he, he has one desire to steal, kill, and destroy. He, he promises freedom. He promised Adam and Eve freedom. If you'll just step outside of God's commands, you will know what it's like to be God. You will be your own God. You will have freedom. He still tells the world today that true freedom is, is not submitting to God and His rule, but being your own God and serving your own desires. And Jesus said, you must believe in faith that He is a liar and He has come not to give you life by becoming your own God, but the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He tells you it's life, but it is death. And then Jesus says, but I, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. You understand, it's not good news that God has sent His Son to reign unless His Son is good. Unless He is good. What makes this good news is that God loves the world. God has mercy even on His enemies. The people that would oppose Him, that would kill His Son, God loved them and He sent His Son. And His Son gives life to all who look to Him. That is the good news. And further good news in your notes, though it tries with all of its might, evil cannot overwhelm Jesus. Even though it tries with all of its might, evil cannot overwhelm Jesus. It wouldn't be good news if Jesus was not good, if God was not good. He is. It would not be good news if Jesus was good but didn't have power to win the victory. Good news is that Jesus is good and comes to give life. 
He helps us to understand what true freedom is. It's so backwards to what we think because the world says freedom is to be your own God and Jesus says freedom is to be with God and be under His care. I think it was Tim Keller that used to say that for a fish to be free of the water is not true freedom because it would die. True freedom is learning to live in the right restrictions. To submit to the right things. Freedom, true freedom is found in submitting to the One who created you and cares for your soul and knows how your life will work the best. Knows how to give you abundant life. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. And we're not talking about abundance in material goods. If God chooses to do that, praise Him. But we're talking about spiritual life and abundance. Jesus has come to give us that. To give us true freedom. And evil still opposes Him. But the other part of the good news is evil cannot overwhelm Him. When it comes to Advent, when it comes to Christmas, we don't talk a lot about Matthew chapter 2. We talk a lot about Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Christ. We don't always talk about Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Pause. Why was Herod troubled? Because he heard there was a king. And he opposed another kingdom and another king. Because that would mean that he was no longer in power. It's right from Psalm 2. It's why the nations rage. It's why the peoples plot in vain. So what did Herod do? He assembled all the chief priests and scribes and he, he started asking them, where's this Christ supposed to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. So Herod summoned the wise men back to him secretly and he said, tell me when you first saw this star. How long has it been? And they told him and then he told them, go to Bethlehem. I hear that's where you're going to find this Messiah. Try to find Him diligently. And when you do, come back to me and let me know you found Him because I want to go worship Him as well. So the wise men went and found Jesus, but they were warned to not return to Herod. And so they departed. Herod, when he realized that the wise men were not going to return. Herod became furious. When you try to rip power from someone who wants to be their own God, their response will be fury. 
There are many people today in the world who are mad at God. They are angry at Him. But at the core of their anger is they do not want Him to be Lord. Herod was furious and he sent a battalion troops and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem two years old and under. Every baby that was a boy in Bethlehem, two years old and under, was slaughtered by Herod. It is a very evil act. And he did that because he hated God's king. He hated the rule of God. And he was determined to destroy it. But God had told Joseph to take Jesus and go to Egypt. Evil could not win the day. Behind Herod was the very forces of evil, the very forces of darkness, Satan himself. But he would not overwhelm Jesus. Neither would he overwhelm Jesus in Matthew 26 when Jesus' friend Judas betrayed him with a kiss. Neither would he overwhelm Jesus in Matthew chapter 27 when the people decided to crucify him. Neither would he overwhelm Jesus in the death of Christ on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended to His Father. Evil cannot overwhelm Christ because He is the anointed King of God. That church is the good news. That's the good news of Advent. John, in John chapter 1, spoke of Jesus in this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The good news is Jesus is King. He is a good and benevolent King. And He is all-powerful. He has all authority. Evil will not win the day. Jesus will not be overwhelmed. That is good news for all people who are willing to submit their lives to God. It is not good news for all of those who are determined, like Herod, to hold on to power. Do you know how much chaos and suffering is caused in this world by people who do not want to get rid, let go of their power? They are determined to rule their lives and to not submit to God. And it is the cause of all kinds of suffering. And church, it must be different for us. If we have the light, it must be different for us.
This is our hope. In your notes, Jesus will return and reign forever. That is our hope. It is the hope even in Psalm 2. As the psalmist begins to point toward the anointed King of God, ultimately pointing toward the Savior, Jesus. I will tell of this decree, the Lord has said, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your heritage, the ends of the earth Your possession. This is talking about Jesus. Not that on that day He became the Son of God, but on that day, day He was declared to be to all of the nations God's Son, Emmanuel, God with us. And it is God's plan to exalt His King, His Son, so that the nations will be His heritage, His possession. Jesus made everything. He holds all things together. And everything is for Him. Everything points back to Him. And He is going to return and He is going to reign forever. And our hope in that, already in the good news that He is a good God and evil cannot overwhelm Him, but our hope, furthermore, is that Jesus gives us that abundant life, which means the shadow of death is lifted for all who cling to Him. That's our hope. The shadow of death is lifted for all who cling to Jesus. I, I use the word cling because obviously what we mean there and what the Bible tells us is believe. But I want you to understand what it means to believe in Christ. It is not merely a factual belief. It is not merely that you, you believe a story. It is that you believe in Christ to the point of clinging to Him for everything. He is your hope in life. He is your hope to have abundant life on this earth and in eternity. So you cling to Him. Luke chapter 1, the prophecy about Jesus said that because of the tender mercy of God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Those in the darkness, the sun will break on them and will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The shadow of death is lifted for all who cling to Jesus. I have all throughout this year experienced waves of grief like I haven't experienced in my life as I walked through my first year without my mom. I think I posted this on social media not too long ago, but I've learned that, that grief is seems pretty random. It hits you when you least expect it. But the other thing I've learned is there has not been a single moment that I've experienced that grief that it wasn't followed by a wave of grace and peace. And that grace and peace has always been reminded that the shadow of death has been lifted. My mom clung to Christ and she is with Him. 
That is our hope. That is our hope in this life. No matter what struggles we face, what trials, what problems, what suffering, we can look to Christ and cling to Him. We can pray to be delivered. We can pray for healing. We can pray and He will answer those prayers. We can also pray in the midst of our suffering and trust that even when He delays in answering, He is giving us the strength to walk with Him in the midst of our pain because the shadow of death has been removed. There is nothing ahead but life everlasting for those who believe upon Jesus. Yes, if He waits that long, all of our physical bodies will one day break down. And we will then step into the presence of the One that we have clung to our whole life. And we will see Him face to face. That's our hope. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For He must reign until He has put all His, his enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is coming to kill death. That is our hope. And so, the conclusion then is how should we live? And in Psalm 2, we are given very clearly what wisdom is. In your notes, it is wisdom to love Jesus, the One who has loved you first with His whole life. It is wisdom to love Jesus who has loved you first with His whole life. Look at the rest of the psalm. Speaking of the Son of God, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. First of all, who's doing, who's doing the breaking here? Jesus. Jesus said at His first advent, I did not come into the world to condemn the world. I came to save the world. Not to judge the world, but to save the world. But church, that was His first advent. It's not His second. In His second advent, when He returns, it will be to judge. John chapter 5, Jesus says the Father will give Judgment to me. He will judge the world in His second advent. The ones that will be broken to pieces are those who have decided to be their own God. To hold on to their own power. So what's the conclusion the psalmist reaches in the last three verses? Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. If Christ is good, and if Christ overcomes all evil, and if Christ knows how to give abundant life to those who cling to Him, and if Christ will rule with finality over a new heavens and a new earth, then the only wise response is to kiss the Son. To love Him. Because He loved you first. Because He submitted His life. He submitted Himself to a life of poverty, ultimately resulting in public shame and torture and death on a cross. And He did it so that you might believe in Him for the forgiveness of your sins and you might have life. And church, if you are here and you have heard that your whole life and you believe it, but you are bored with it, stir your heart until it motivates you to live with passion for the kingdom of God. Because there is no greater story. There is no greater promise There is no greater word than the light of the world is shown into the darkness of your heart and given Himself for you. So live for Him with the same passion that He died for you. And if you are here and you just realize my whole life I've been religious, but I don't, I don't, cling to Christ this way. I don't even know if I truly believe in this way. Today, cry out to Him. Ask Him to open your heart. Ask Him to open your eyes. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to give you passion for His kingdom. He has loved you with His whole life. Yes, it is different. We have to tell ourselves that it's different. Freedom is not found in not having any commands or rules or being your own God. Freedom is found in submitting to the One who created you. Believing in Christ and what He has done on your behalf and submitting to His Lordship. That's the message of Advent. Charles Spurgeon said that to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love the yoke of Christ or do we wish to cast it from us? Those are the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Excuse me, Matthew 11. Verse 28, Jesus said, Come to Me, all of you who are heavy laden, those of you who labor, 
Those of you who are weary from trying to be your own God and rule your own life and make everything work. Those of you who are tired of trying to figure it out on your own. Those of you who are constantly anxious about the future and what will happen. Those of you who don't see hope in the future, come to Me and I will give you rest. And how does Jesus give us rest? He says, I will put My yoke upon you. That picture of yoking two cattle together. One is usually stronger and more mature that is yoked to a younger and immature ox who will then be led and guide and learn by the older, mature one. He says, take My yoke upon you. Learn from Me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Church, that's our call. Abide in Christ. Yoke yourself to Him. Every day, pray to Him. Abide with Him. Read His Word. Worship Him. Listen for His voice. Learn from Him. He will teach you. He will teach you His ways. Lowly and gentle in heart. You will not want to live that way in this world. But He will teach you His ways. To the believer, that sounds like paradise. I don't have to do it on my own. I don't have to make everything work. I don't have to figure it all out. Christ will be with me and He will teach me and I will learn from Him. Yes, give me that life. To those who don't believe, that will sound like suffering. I can't plot my own path. I can't do it my own way. I can't just figure it out on my own and run to God when I need something, when I can't figure something out. And they will constantly be trying to cast off that yoke. Judge yourself. Do you find the yoke of Christ to be a joy? Or do you find the idea of being yoked to Christ to be a burden? But don't stop there. If it's a joy, press into Him more. Ask Him to never leave you. He won't. Ask Him to keep teaching you. Ask Him to make your heart more teachable. To grow and to listen. And to learn to become more like Him. To shine His light more. And your own light less. And if you say, it's a burden. Repent. You don't don't have to come down and talk to me and pray a sentence after me or anything like that. Begin by just crying out to Jesus. Ask Him to open your heart. Ask Him to save you. Ask Him to help you find His yoke to not be a burden. And once you have done that, I, I then encourage you Come speak to someone. 